Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. Tom Moran here from Thomas Big Spiders. First off, most importantly, I hope everybody had a happy and safe Thanksgiving. I know we did. We had a very small gathering, but ended off the evening going over to visit the new house, which we finally got. And I know I keep talking about this, and I feel badly, but it was one of those things, had I known it was going to turn out this way, I never would have mentioned it in the first place back you know, in the summer when we were looking at it. But uh, you guys are nearing the end of the road as far as having to listen to me talk about it. But again, uh, we're, the next time you'll hear anything about it will most likely be in about two weeks when I do my first podcast from it, which I can't wait. We met the neighbors. One of the neighbors yesterday was funny because we were, were joking. It's a little cul-de-sac, and we have been down there now at least a couple dozen times, and I've seen two people outside. Two. And it was a joke in a billy. It's like one of those horror movies where you move in, you find out they're all vampires or something, come out at night. But it was so quiet compared to even um, where I live now is a dead end street, but the houses are kind of more clustered together. There's only a few of us up here. That, well, about six houses total. But there's always movement. There's always kids going out, people moving around, people walking the dogs up. There's always something going on. The other place seems so much more quiet. So that bodes very well for having a quiet place for the podcast because I've already stopped this one four times because of cars and trucks and my neighbors talking loudly. So we're in. I spent the last that we went over to show my brother the house Thanksgiving night. The day after Thanksgiving, Black Friday, we actually hit the stores, which was moronic. I, I wasn't even thinking. I just knew I needed stuff to start putting things together. So we hit the stores, went over, and I spent Friday and Saturday both putting all the shelving up. So you a lot of track shelving. So far, I have four rows, and they're about 20 feet worth of shelving on each row. So lots of room. New enclosures we picked up. Can't wait to get going on this. Last night, we went around the tarantula room, and basically, I had a list of all the new enclosures I had purchased. And then had to make a list of the enclosures that would be opened up if I moved some out of them into the new enclosure. So we, you know, we have more enclosures to fill there. Ends up, we're up around 42 rehousings I want to get done before, you know, the new, the end of the year. So there'll be a lot going on as far as videos and doing husbandry information on those. But obviously a lot of that will come over usually when I do a husbandry video. I also go over and do a husbandry podcast. So a lot of really cool things coming. And I will at some point do a room tour with everything all set up because I'm very proud of it, honestly. It's, it's something that, you know, again, this was a, a big push behind Billy and I moving. I, I, if I do a video of it, what it's going to start with is me making the offhanded comment during one of the unboxing videos that we need a new house now because it literally started with that. And then, you know, we'll get the video up and hopefully you guys will go check it out. And a huge thank you to my patrons. I set up a patron account years ago, and I didn't. I just didn't feel good about it. I still don't know how I feel about it. It's, it's weird for me because I never did this for money, but people said, you know what, give us the choice, give us the opportunity. So finally, after having the account open and not activated for many, or it was, it was basically created and I didn't activate it, I activated it, and we picked up some patrons, and they've been amazing. We go over there, we kind of chat, and this isn't a poll. I don't mention it, and I want to make this very clear, and I feel badly for the people that my patrons, because I don't mention all that much because I don't want people to feel obligated to go over there, but it needs to be mentioned because they've been, I've kind of just left the money sitting there. I left the money sitting there. haven't touched it because I felt weird about it. Well, they're kind of financing this whole new tarantula room. So there'll be, you'll hear me talking more about them. I don't want this taken as a look. I'm trying to get money. As a matter of fact, I might go over and limit how many people can even join because that's not what this is about, but it's, it's giving thanks. You know, it's Thanksgiving and I, getting the house was only one part of this without, these generous people apparently feeling that they want to support what I'm doing. I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing now as far as the shelving and the enclosure. So you'll be hearing a lot, you know, in the future, just me mentioning people by name and thanking.
thanking them because I truly am. I can't even tell you how appreciative we are. Billy and I were sitting there yesterday in the tea room, and I'm like, I, I couldn't have done this without. It would have taken months, if not years, to kind of slowly pick up everything I needed for this. So to be able to do it in one fell swoop is just amazing. To be able to sit there and you know, hopefully in a couple months, show off this new room is incredibly exciting to me. So. Just wanted to mention that. So moving on, last week's podcast generated a lot of feedback as I kind of guessed that it would. And I'm glad because I think it's something that needs to be discussed. I think it's something that anybody that owns tarantulas, we need to talk about how, you know, we we keep them alive. The whole goal is to keep them alive and keep them healthy. But what happens when we can't keep them alive any longer or they're suffering? How do we euthanize them? A lot of feedback, which is great. I did get a response from Andy, the veterinarian I've been corresponding with, who will be probably the first guest that I have on the show, because I just think, you know, if we're going to do guests, we're going to have people that are going to offer something new instead of just, I like spiders, I like spiders. But um, Andy, I'm I'm not going to go through, read it word for word, because I think what also came out of this is this is going to be a wonderful topic for he and I to discuss when I actually get him on. But one quote that really stuck, uh, stuck out to me was, humane euthanasia for inverts is a contested subject with no clear answer. And I think that's why we're having so much confusion over this. This is why there is still a, de- a debate over it. You know, if you ask the most humane way to put your dog down, I mean, granted, if you ask a farmer, you're going to get a slightly different one, but it's quick and effective. And I won't go into that. But the majority of people are going to say you bring it to the veterinarian and they can put your dog to sleep. However, it's different with arachnids because a lot of us, unfortunately, and this is something I hope Andy and I can work through when we talk. A lot of us feel like that veterinarians don't necessarily know what to do with the arachnids. They, they're kind of fumbling through it. Not all of them, and I want to make this clear because I got spanked last time I said this, but I know mine was very clear that he just doesn't deal with them, and, and I thought that was good. I've talked to other people that there said, oh, yeah, we know what they're doing, and it's blatantly obvious they don't know what's going on with arachnids, but it does sound like arachnid medicine is starting to become more studied, more popular. There's more discussion over it. Again, I'm, I'm speaking just from what I've learned from Andy. This is not my own knowledge. But it, there, there is a growing understanding of how they work. But speaking to him, a couple things that came out of it, and I'm going to kind of encapsulate here. He agreed that CO2, if, if you could do it safely and not you know put people at risk, because obviously if you're working with CO2, that could be harmful to humans, would be a great way to go, or anesthetic gases. The other one that came up was an injection of pentobarbital and then drop into 70% alcohol to finish the job. So basically, the the big takeaway was the idea that you should anesthetize the animal before dispatching it, that that is the most humane way to do it. Uh, crushing, we talked about, a bit about crushing, and I know I mentioned in the podcast that that's probably the absolute fact. It's, it's like when you talk about... I hate to bring this one up because I already alluded to it, but shooting an animal. I grew up on a farm, and I, I don't do this myself now, but for as far as quick and painless, if done correctly, there's no like stress of being dragged somewhere else to do it. A lot of people will advocate that that's a quick way to go, and it's unpalatable for most of us because most of us can't fathom shooting a beloved pet. I don't even like talking about it right now. I, I don't think I could do it. And but it is a quick way. And I think much like that, the crushing is is it's a similar way where it's going to be quick. It's going to be effective. The spider's never going to know what hit it. But it's gross. And a lot of us don't want to think about that. But he did agree that something that destroys the entire like if you were able to crush the entire spider at the same time, like the whole thing, it's going to be quick and painless. It's not going to have a chance to register any pain because it's like, boom, it's done. So I think most of it, I did talk to, I did hear from a couple people who use this method. They said it's gross, but they basically, one guy said he had 
a spider that he had to put down. He basically put down a flat board, put the spider on it, and used a center block, and he has yet to remove the center block because the thought of seeing the spider like that really disturbs him. So I think, you know, again, nobody wants to think, but the crushing, and again, it can't be like crushing part of it, crushing the abdomen, crushing like The idea is you're destroying the entire spider at once, and I think that's, you know, again, gross, but it's it would be quick. The freezing, the freezing came out. This was interesting because I had two people that work in labs that are researchers that use animals for research and such, and one that specifically works with insects and arachnids, and they all said that they use freezing, that that was the standard for when working with those animals. So that got me thinking, all right, the freezing, we're on the right track with that. However, talking to Andy, one of the things that came up is we don't know yet. We like to think that they just go to sleep. And then drift off, which is, you know, what the majority of us have been led to believe. And that could be true. But if they don't, if the freezing only slows them down, and he spoke about how there had been drugs that you could give to like a dog that seemingly put the dog at ease. It was, you know, anesthetized, but they come to find out they could still feel, they could still, they just couldn't move. They couldn't, so you'd feel stuff, you just weren't able to react to it, which is horrifying. So that's one of the thoughts about arachnids, that it's possible that they can feel the freezing, that they do feel pain for it. So there's some question about that. So what I've got out of this is the fact that, you know, going through Andy, he, you know, he gave some of the ones that he thought would be good ones. He said freezing for most owners would be the most palatable way. It's still, you know, again, there's that question about what they feel, but he, he did agree that that would be probably the most palatable and, you know, a way that an owner that has a tarantula that can't get to the vet or needs to do something in a hurry would probably use. Crushing method would work. But he did say that one thing you could do that a lot of people won't do is bring it to a vet because regardless of if they're good at the medicine, you know, at, at tarantula medicine or not, they're going to have the necessary chemicals they need to properly put the animal down without any pain. So one of the things we'll probably talk about is what to do, and this will be a future one because I am working on an article right now about this, and it'll probably be a video, and then obviously we'll go back and visit it in the podcast. But one of the things I'd like to do and work with Andy on and, you know, is kind of come up with an idea of what you can tell your vet would be the appropriate thing. Most of them, I'm assuming most of them would know and would know what to try, but if we all kind of get on the same page and go, all right, Here's my spider with the spider community. This is what we do to euthanize them. Could you please euthanize my spider and kind of have a game plan? I think that would help for ones that maybe have the materials but don't necessarily haven't experienced this before, haven't had to do it before. It might give them at least an idea of where to start. So to be continued, Andy, thank you so much for chatting with me on this. I do appreciate it, and Andy's going to be huge going ahead because I do think there's a lot of things we just don't have information on. Anybody else that wants to chime in on this one too, I think what I'll be doing is a little blurbs as I do the article of some you know expert feedback because I'm what I'm doing now is trying to do the research and, and get the most agreed upon way to dispatch our pets when you know the time comes where they're they're obviously suffering and I don't think it's going to be an easy task but it's something I think needs to be done uh the other thing I want to respond to just briefly is I got a couple messages and a couple emails about the keeper in question why don't I name well there was like two sides one of them why don't you just flat out name people and call them out because that's not what we're doing here that's not the point that's not we're not trying to cause cause some type of you know argument or online drama I load that I don't want anything to do with it and then I had other people that are like why are you picking on him he's just trying to have fun with his animals and I don't see why it's such a big deal and here's my take on it 
I, I go back to the old, I don't know if anybody remembers the Charles Barkley commercial, I'm Not a Role Model, and it, it caused a big discussion because there were people who were like, yep, yeah, it was about obviously professional athletes, and there were some that were like, yeah, they're paid, they're athletes, they're paid to go out there and play, they're not trying to be role models, but then there's others like, the reality are there are tons of children out there that are looking up to you as role models, you can't pick and choose, if you're out there and you're visible, you are a role model. So this idea that the people that are doing, you know, pet tube and doing stuff with animals, it's incorrect, but oh, you know, they don't mean anything nobody people know better than to look up to him that is not true i'm, I'm just going to throw that out there a lot of people were making comments like, i know not to look at him i know this we know because we're educated enough to recognize that the stuff that goes on on some of these channels and that channel is definitely one of them isn't necessarily best practice as far as tarantula keeping but there are thousands dare i say considering how many people follow him potentially millions of people that are watching that that know nothing about our trade that think that is what he does is the gold standard. I'm sorry, you, it's an inarguable point. And that's why it gets upsetting when you got somebody that has that much of a reach that could be doing great things for the hobby. Instead of the old, hey, I, you know, he, at least he brings people in that aren't interested. And then some of those people go out, they pick up spiders, realize there's more to it, and start looking for the right information. Yeah, that's nice. But can you imagine if there was 2 million people getting the right information right from the bat, right from the get-go? It would be fantastic. So I have a hard time with that because the people that are like, well, he's not trying to be a role model. He's a role model. You can't take it. You're on YouTube. I've seen if you work with children, if you work with even teenagers, they idolize some of these people. My own kids who are, are bright kids and, and they do have logical thinking. I've gotten discussions over them before. We're trying to, you know, get them to understand that, yes, I understand you like this particular YouTube, but so, YouTuber, but some of the things he or she does are questionable and uh, are really defensible. So I don't call people out because it's not my job and I don't want to do it and I don't need drama and stuff. But as somebody who prides himself on being a teacher, who prides himself on teaching about these animals, who cares about these animals, seeing some of the things I see, it's hard to keep my mouth shut. Right after posting this one, apparently there was another video where there was a rehousing and the spider is not dropped once, but dropped twice during the course of the rehousing. About four feet down, hits the floor. It was despicable and it was so avoidable. Put down the camera camera, worry about your spider first. And that's the problem with YouTube. That's why YouTube and YouTubers in general have such a terrible reputation when it comes to getting good tarantula husbandry. And it's it's kind of well-earned. It's because for every one person out there that knows what they're doing and is putting out solid material, probably not the most entertaining material, there are 25, 30, 50 people out there that are going out and just doing it for fun or doing it to get an audience. And I know that sounds cynical, but it's it's the truth. And I've watched a lot of YouTube channels. And, and again, I get some people, I've watched some people, they get in, they want to just document their way into to the hobby. And there's nothing wrong with that. I've, I've seen some really good channels of people. They're like, listen, I'm brand new at this. I'm just figuring things out. And then you watch them over the course of years and they, they learn the stuff. So that's good. That's, that's valuable because people can go look at this guy's new and he's making mistakes that I would make. But if you've been doing this for several years and you're still making the same mistakes, I'm sorry. That's, that's not good. That's not, it's not acceptable. And about the, the tarantula, I had some people that come forward and make the comment and it it wasn't a lot. I don't want to make it look like there was this big backlash, but there was a lot of good, and then there was some some sprinkled in that kind of took exception, I think, because they like the individual. But I'm like, all right, let's take the spider out of the equation. He has a puppy. 
and he doesn't know what to do with the puppy, so he drowns the puppy in dish soap. I'm betting there would be much more of an outcry. Now, I'm sure there are some people out there that are going, but that's a puppy. We're talking about spiders. Well, then I guess you don't see spiders the same way we do, the majority of us in the hobby. We see them as living animals that deserve just the same amount of respect as a furry animal. And this is coming from a guy who absolutely adores dogs. I'm not one of those people that's like, I don't like any of the hairy vertebrates. I've heard from people like that. I love dogs, but I feel the same way if I saw somebody drowning a dog as I saw somebody drowning a spider. And I get the people like, oh, he was trying to be informative. He was trying to be educational. That scares me because what he taught people was it's okay to go pull a random comment off of a video that, you know, describes basically drowning an animal and use that instead of pausing, putting down the camera for a bit, doing your research, you know, instead of being on the fly, doing your research, you could always come back to it and go, look at, here's how I did my research. I went here. No way. I went here. But this is the way it just, I don't know. It, it bothered me. So that's it. We're not talking about that anymore, but I felt like I wanted to, you know, just explain once again quickly why this type of stuff bothers me and why it bothers a lot of people, why it kind of heats up on the boards when something like this happens, because we really do love the hobby. We really do love these animals and we hate to see something like that happen to them. So anyway, moving off of this, getting into something, well, maybe not positive, but a little different topic, be getting a lot of questions lately about wild caught specimens. I just had one of my patrons, Carol Ward, ask me since it's holiday shopping time, I'd appreciate some info on wild caught versus captive bred teas. She also stated that she's against them, but it's not just her. I've received many. I don't know what's going on. I think it's this time of year where people start doing Black Friday sales or dealers start coming up with stuff that they're like, oh, it's they've got adults of this species. Did they raise those up? Were they wild caught? I think it's nice to touch base on it, to give my thoughts on it. And to explain some pros and cons, well, I don't see a lot of pros, but some cons as far as getting the wild-caught specimens. Now, for anybody who doesn't know what that means, wild-caught specimens mean that they were basically plucked out of the wild. Somebody went out and harvested them, pulled them out of their natural habitat to sell them into the pet trade. Um, for years, I mean, let's let's get this out of the way, and I've covered this before. The hobby is built on people stealing animals from the wild. Let's not ever forget that. I know there'll be people, every time I say this, somebody gets upset and it's like, well, it's not like that. We're doing good. I'm just being realistic. The majority of species we have, there wouldn't be this issue with certain countries suddenly going, hey, you never exported out anything you know, legally and now you can't sell that in the United States. We have a problem with the United States because if stuff wasn't pulled out correctly, you're not allowed to sell it. I'm not getting into all that, but we wouldn't have that issue if these things were collected legitimately. We had the uh, Birupi Simaruxagorum that recently came out, and come to find out, the people that supposedly had the permits to pull them didn't have the permits to pull them. I still have not received any other information otherwise, so until I do, you know, there was a pipeline there. I'm assuming they were illegal. And they popped right up into the hobby. So we do have an issue. The hobby is built on this. Now, what we do with it, it's tough because I think those of us who recognize that there is always that little guilt there that these wonderful spiders that I adore, we likely contributed to the fact that they are no longer in the wild. Now, obviously, the flip side of that is somebody comes up and goes, well, a lot of these guys like take uh, Pisolotheria. Hanumavalisa Mika, they are critically endangered, and it's because they're basically ripping down. There's that story where they went to put in something in the, where they're from, and they tore down trees, and there was a tree that had a bunch of them in it that they basically threw on a fire and burned up. So you hear horrible stories like that, and it allows you to sleep better at night because you're like, you know what? I may have some of these spiders, but I, you know, years from now, I may be the only person to have some of these spiders. They may only exist in collections. So there's that back and 
fourth moral pull and push of, you know, it's bad to take him out of the wild, but it's good that we're going to keep him around. It's tough. It's, I wrestle with it myself, and it's one of the reasons why I don't back down from mentioning it anytime we talk about this topic, because I do think people need to be aware of that. And, you know, maybe it, it creates change. I think that's one of those things where I've heard of more people going, you know, uh, that's why I want to do breeding. I want to get more of these in the hobby so that we're not pulling them out of the wild. And I'd like to say I don't think United States is one of the big culprits as far as, you know, pulling tarantulas out of the wild and selling them into the pet trade. I think we have gotten better because we buy a lot of ours captive bred from Europe. We are doing some breeding over here, but there are still wild caught specimens popping up. So is it wrong? Uh, well, I mean, you can go by letter of the law if the animal was poached and not taken out of the country of origin with proper permits then yes, it's it's illegal. It's wrong. And it's a lot of what we got. We used to think back to the day of the pet stores where you get like T. Sturmy would come in and you'd see these emaciated, like the despicably emaciated T. Sturmy specimens, large specimens that were obviously pulled right out of the wild, shipped over to the United States and dropped into pet stores. This used to happen all the time before they were readily bred over here or readily, readily bred in Europe. And it would be hard to argue that those spiders are better off now than they were back where at home in the wild. So this is something where, generally speaking, if you're pulling an animal out of its natural habitat to sell it to people for pets, that's not a good thing. That's at all. Now, again, you like to sit there and go, well, the majority of these animals were pulled out of places where they're going to cut everything down, where they, they have habitat loss, where they have to worry about being predated on. They have such a better life in collections, do they? I mean, I think a lot of us take great care of our animals and we strive to, to give them the best husbandry, the best lives possible. And as we mentioned earlier, some of these animals end up, you know, <laughs> YouTube collect, YouTubers collections being, you know, dropped on floors. We have ones that end up in uh, hobbyists, you know, they, they get a spider, it's cool for a week and it sits there and languishes and eventually dies in a tank, a 10 gallon tank with some gravel in a corner of a bedroom somewhere. I, I don't think they necessarily go to people all, all the time that are going to care for them properly. I, I, one of the big issues is where you will most likely run into wild-caught specimens nowadays because I do think they are less prevalent, which is a good thing. The, the place you're most likely to find them are pet stores. The big box pet stores are particularly egregious with selling wild-caught specimens. I do know Petco several years ago recognized that the tarantula hobby was really picking up and they wanted to kind of cater more toward tarantula hobbyists and they were actually buying theirs from, uh, what was it? It's like LLC Reptiles or something. I can't remember the actual name of the place, but I think they were starting to buy more slings. And that was actually an improvement in a way because obviously if their slings, most likely we're hoping their captive bred slings are the more popular, readily available species. That's a good sign. But that you still get the, you know, all of a sudden the, the adult lavicularia. I've heard some weird ones lately. They've they, Some people have been selling... Uh, God, somebody just approached me with a Canthoscuria species that I'd never even heard of that they found at a pet store. I'm guessing somebody didn't just raise that. It didn't come from a collection because I haven't seen them around. Most likely somebody pulled it out of the wild. So the pet stores are the places where the majority of these wild-caught specimens are still being sold and traded. Not to say they don't pop up. We'll get to vendors in a minute because they do pop up in vendors. 
but that's going to be the spot where you're most likely to see them. Now, what is the problem with that? The Those of us who have been in the pet trade for a, a pet hobby for a while, or the tarantula hobby for a while, have been indoctrined to not purchase spiders from pet stores because there's, and I've gone through this argument before. I'm not going to get back into it. You can find the old podcast where I give my views. And again, it's kind of, I wrestle with it. But the idea is that if pet stores are taking terrible care of tarantulas, do not buy the tarantulas there because that way nobody will buy them and they'll stop selling them. And unfortunately, we have to sacrifice a couple along the way, but it's for the greater good. Now, I've argued this before that the people that they're trying to sell these to aren't people like you or I. There aren't people that know that you can buy them online, that there are reputable dealers out there like Fear Not Tarantulas, Jamie's Tarantulas, Swift's Inverts, Pinchers and Pokies. I know I'm going to miss people and they're going to get upset with me, but I'm just throwing ones off the top of my head. There are great dealers out there that you can buy from and know that you're getting, you know, captive bred stock, you're getting good stock. They don't know about that. So what's happening is the people that know better aren't buying there. Who's buying these? Impulse buyers. People that, you know, come into a pet store. They One of the reasons they carry tarantulas in pet stores is because they're an oddity. People are like, oh God, spider, look at it, come here. Johnny, look at this, it's a spider. And they all look at it and it brings eyes into the store. A lot of times the people don't buy the spiders, but they come in, they look at the spiders and they go around and buy something else. Other cases, they come in like, oh, that would be so cool. I want one of those. What is this thing called? P. Murinus. It's orange. It's gorgeous. I'm going to bring this home. And then they get it home. They buy a wild-caught specimen. They have no idea. They have a spider that they didn't do any research on. And then I get an email later on. Why is my orange spider? doesn't? It doesn't seem to want to be handled. It, it sounds funny, but it's the truth. The people that are buying the ones in the pet stores aren't the ones who are particularly educated. It's not saying there aren't some places, and we all hit, we've all done it. We've all gone to pet stores. We've all seen stuff. A lot of us have guiltily picked one up because we felt badly for it, but that's not the majority. We could all, every one of us who's who's educated in the hobby could agree not to buy one of these spiders, and I can guarantee dang to you that people are still going to go in there and buy them. So that's the unfortunate part. Those buying them do not have the education to recognize that they're getting wild-caught specimens. They do not have the, and by education, I mean education about the hobby, to recognize that this is a bad thing. Heck, I did it. I did it years ago. I'm pretty sure the queen, my G. Porteri, that I absolutely adore. 99% 99% positive that was a captive, I mean, a wild-caught specimen. Now, I love her to death. I would never get rid of her, but that was a species right there that was being pulled out of the wild in such numbers that Chile finally had to close the doors and go stop pulling them out of the wild. So is it wrong? Yes, it's wrong. It's I, I, th- I don't think there's any other way, at least for the... I don't want to sit there and contradict myself here, but I think the majority of the species nowadays that you might be looking to get in the hobby they're going to be, they're bred. We breed them, we get the captive bred specimens. It Should anybody that's just a general hobbyist be picking up a wild-caught specimen, knowing that's wild-caught? My gut, I don't like to ever just deal in absolutes. My gut would be, no, there's really no point. Find a sling, raise it up. But I think what happens is, a lot of times, and this is where we fall in the trap, we're looking for a spider for a while, and then all of a sudden they have, you know, we don't want a sling, we want something that's a little bigger, but unfortunately it's a species like, say, a fauna pelma, that it can take you years to grow a sling up to that juvenile stage so there aren't many of them they sell out before they get to that stage so then what do you do suddenly somebody's offering three to four inch specimens you start to wonder where did they get these three to four inch specimens they seem to have a lot of them did they just hold on to these for the 10 years it took to grow them up or are they possibly pulled right out of the wild that's where we start finding ourselves in those sticky spots where it's like maybe just this one time 
I just had somebody, one of the emails I got was about specifically somebody selling a Fonapelma. I believe they're in the three inch range. I won't mention the name of the dealer, but they're worried that they might not be captive bred specimens. The dealer apparently, quote unquote, did not know where they came from. Whoever they got them from didn't tell them. Uh, generally speaking, here's one of the ways people ask me, how can you tell if they're wild caught? First way, easiest way is to ask. Where did these specimens, if you're worried, generally, if you're dealing with slings and you're buying in the United States, I can tell you the majority of the slings are raised, you know, the ones we get here are imported from Europe, from captive bred specimens. In most cases, if you're buying one of the spiders that was just described, for example, by Rupees Cimaroxagorum, there's some question as to the parentage, whether or not the parents are actually captive bred or whether or not they were pulled out. That's, that's sketchy. But the older established ones, you can pretty much assume that if you're buying slings, you're good. When you start finding larger specimens of the slow-growing species, a fauna pelma readily comes to mind because I, I see a lot of the larger specimens being sold in the United States. You can probably assume that they were wild caught. Somebody went out, harvested some, picked some up, and now they're in the pet trade. And again, I know nobody wants to spend the time growing them up for a sling, but you have to ask yourself, is it worth it? You've pulled that, they pulled those out of the wild to sell. Now, if somebody out there, I want to make this very clear, if the vendor out there that's selling these, and I didn't mention any name, wants to come out and say, Hey, we know for a fact these are captive bred. Please let me know. But I'm just saying that's one of the that's one of the things I use to figure out if they are wild caught or not. I've also seen other species of tarantulas being sold where they suddenly have like C. lividus. That's another one that comes to mind. Where suddenly somebody's selling ten female adult female C. lividus. Where do those come from? Did somebody actually raise up enough slings to adulthood to sex out ten females, and now they're selling them? A lot of times they're like fifty bucks. That just doesn't seem highly likely to me. Now, maybe somebody did. Who knows? Hey, I love the species, but now I'm getting rid of them. It doesn't seem likely. So those are little signs that you can use to kind of gauge whether or not the specimen might be cap or wild caught. Look at things like that. Are they selling adult specimens? Do they have a lot of adult females? Where are they getting from that? It doesn't, it's not a bad thing. It's. It shouldn't be embarrassing to reach out and try to ask, hey, I just had a question where these came from. What you'll normally get and I'll tell you from experience, is the response, oh, I'm not sure. I bought them from so-and-so and they didn't tell me. And that's usually a good sign that they're probably wild caught. You should probably have a pretty good idea where things are coming from, especially if you're getting adults of a species that takes a little while to grow up. So look for the prices. Adults bed pet stores, assume if they're selling adults, unless they can tell you we got this from somebody's collection. Every once in a while, somebody will give one to a pet store and go, can you please sell this for me? But ask where it comes from. If they don't know, they got it from one of their generic suppliers, it's probably wild caught. If you're buying it from a dealer, an online dealer, and they've got a larger specimens of a slow-growing species, definitely ask. That's kind of a tip-off. If they've got adult specimens, a bunch of adult females of a certain species, and they're selling it for cheap, I've seen, you know, again, the C. libidus comes to mind. There are other ones out there that I've also seen, then that would be something that would kind of be a tip off to me that you're likely getting a wild caught specimen. So just when you're shopping, be aware of that type of thing. The adults, the selling of the adults, especially I get a lot of people that ask me, can you tell me a reputable dealer that's selling adult spiders because I don't want to sling or juvenile spiders. And I have to try to explain that the majority of reputable dealers are doing such business with the slings, they don't keep them, they don't raise them up long enough to be adults. You have limited space. If you're selling thousands upon thousands of spiders, maybe over a hundred species, you can't afford to keep these for, you know, two, three, four, in some cases, 10 years 
to be adult size to sell later on. It just doesn't happen. So a lot of times you don't find the adults unless they're getting rid of a breeding pair they had or one of the, they might, you know, every once in a while you'll see like a female go up that they were keeping for breeding but getting rid of. You see stuff like that, but you won't see a bunch of them. So it's kind of hard because I try to tell people, unfortunately, your best bet is to buy a sling. And every once in a while somebody will come back, oh, no, I found a place from you know, XYZ dealer, whatever, they'll come up with a name, and they were selling a bunch of female, sex females. It's like, oh boy, or of course you got the blackwater reptiles there, whatever it's called. They were always selling ones because they're probably pulled out of the wild as well. So the trick is recognize that if you're going for adult specimens, you want to go to places like, I mean, Arachnoboards has a great list of adult specimens that you can actually tell they were raised by people. There are people selling the adult specimens out of their collection. They can tell you, hey, I picked it up 2014 as a sling. You can be assured that you're getting a specimen that was not only, you know, captive bred, but raised with, you know, love and affection. They'll use it, you know, it's it's a better place to go to try to find adults. But I think that's one of the places we run into this. And that's where some of us run into those difficult situations where we're like, I really want this species. I really want a larger specimen and they've got it here and it's cheap and it's, it's tempting. And I can't, do I blame people that pick them up? It, it, no, it, it happens. I think we've all been there again. And I think a lot of us, as we get more, you know, cognizant of the hobby and this issue, we definitely steer. I know I, early on, it didn't even come into my mind. It was like, if they're selling a spider I want, I'll buy it. Now I don't buy any like that. I don't, A, I like to raise them from slings first and foremost, but B, I'm very aware of the fact that if somebody's selling an adult female, I, I'm very, I ask questions, I find out where they got it from, and I'm pretty good at ferreting out whether or not it was something that was, you know, pilfered from the wild. So again, I get why it happens. I get why people do it. I'm not here to sit there and admonish people and say, you're terrible for doing this, but I'm just trying to prevent, uh, present the facts around this and why there is such a stigma with it and why people are trying to avoid it. Now, are there any consequences beyond the fact that you're picking up an animal that was probably pulled out of the wild and potentially mistreated on its way to the pet trade, which for many of us is enough? Well, there are some things. You'll see some behavioral differences. For example, the calcotis, Afonopelma calcotis, people that get captive bred slings. I've spoken to several since putting up a video years ago with my uh, wild caught and throw it right out there female I didn't realize it at the time but afterwards it was blatantly obvious it was wild caught she was nuts she was a hair kicker she was uh, she would throw up threat postures she didn't settle in particularly well that was a wild caught specimen a lot of times they have difficulty adapting to new regions of the country or new regions of the world in some instances you get situations where they don't eat and they fast they're extra defensive they don't settle in they don't burrow they don't web a lot of I behavioral issues from ones that you get from the wild because they are not acclimating correctly. They are in a different region of the world. For example, the G. porteri G. rosea, which was one of the most common spiders in the pet trade. They were pulled in mass numbers out of the wild and sold as pets. They were People always complained about them fasting. Well, what they realized later on is there was an issue with their biological clock that was telling them that the seasons were off. So you were getting this kind of season disorder where they thought it was time to fast because normally it would be getting chillier. They wouldn't have the food. And you'd get a situation where the keeper was all stressed out because their spider wasn't eating. It was a mess. I've also seen it with H. chilensis. I've had many what unfortunately I realize now years later were wild-caught female specimens, some of them probably quite old, and I had some that would never settle down. They wouldn't burrow, they would wander, they wouldn't eat. It was terrible. And I realized later we're seeing the same thing that 
issue with recognizing that you know what season it is they were thrown out of their element because they know they're in the wrong spot they know that the seasons are you know that the seasons are supposed to be this but they're that it's difficult so you get situations like that i've heard people that have got a fauna species that don't seem to settle down that have a hard time they do the fasting thing so that is one of the, the different behaviors you also might get more defensiveness some of the wild caught ones tend to be much more defensive than the capybara. not all but the, there's been situations out there where people have talked about you know hey i have a wild caught one and it is crazy and you got somebody else has a captive bred one that's a, it's a bit more laid back there are differences in behaviors that you can worry about parasites the old nematodes that everybody is desperately afraid of you heard a lot more of them back in the day although i have heard more cases of them recently which is kind of freaking me out a bit but back in the day there were a lot more cases of them because a lot more of our animals were being pulled out of the wild already infested with parasites with nematodes with things that could spread and be deadly to other spiders in their collection so that's something to worry about so morality aside, there are other consequences to picking up wild-caught specimens. You don't know where it came from. You don't know what you're introducing in your hobby. You don't know if you're going to have predictable behaviors. There's other things to worry about. So generally speaking, they are not good. They're, it's it's not good to purchase one. I would not encourage people to purchase one if you know that you're getting a wild-caught specimen, especially not this day and age. The only time I kind of stumble on the whole idea is the fact that the majority of the tarantulas in the hobby today at one point or another were pulled from the wild, wild, were smuggled out. We do get new species in. seems like every year there's a couple new ones in and they're pulled out of the wild. I struggle with that because on one hand, I'm thinking years from now, they'll be in a bunch of collections across the world, which is great. But on the other hand, we are contributing to the fact that they are likely experiencing diminishing numbers in their natural habitat even you know obviously there is habitat loss, but us coming in pulling out the remaining ones to sell into the hobby. Well, that certainly isn't helping the cause either. So, again, it's a tough question. I just find that for the majority of us and the majority of species out there, there's no need to buy the wild-caught specimen, especially if you know it's wild-caught. I'm always talking about how much fun it is to raise something up from a sling. I know that a lot of us get into the hobby. We don't want to – we're worried about killing a sling. We don't want to wait that long to get a big, beautiful adult that we had been admiring. But I'm telling you, it's a huge part of the hobby, and it's. I think the majority of us that have gone that route over the years – agree that there's so much satisfaction to get out of having a, an animal that you've raised from a little baby. I, some of the ones in my collection I picked up as adults, I've gone back and picked up slings for because I want the experience of raising them up. So that's basically all you get out of it is you get a larger spider because usually the captain. And again, in the U.S. at least, we don't see a lot of wild-caught slings being sold. I don't know if it's different in other countries, maybe in Europe. It's different, so feel free to chime in. That's not an issue here. Usually the ones we get are the older specimens. But I'd personally, I'd implore people to ignore them and to not pick them up, to not buy them in the pet stores if you think they have the adults that are wild caught, to not pick them up from dealers online that are selling them. You know, again, those three-inch Afanapelmas, I don't know. My guess would be that they are not captive bred unless somebody was keeping a bunch of them around for some reason, raising them up for many, many years. I can tell you, I've got a fond of Pelma slings now that are taking forever to grow. So it just doesn't make sense from a business standpoint to hold onto them for that long and then sell them for a couple, you know, 10, 20, 30 bucks more later, whatever it may be. So that's it for this one. Unfortunately, I had another topic I was going to do, but I'm going to be completely honest. I've got to do some packing and moving today. I almost didn't get the podcast done, but I wanted to make sure we keep the streak going. And I know a lot of people look forward to it. And plus, it was the first one after Thanksgiving, so I didn't want to skip that. But I do got to get some more stuff packed up and get to the new house and do some more work in the new room. So hopefully we can get set up there. I've stopped probably 15 times during the course of this to try to get my dog to stop from snoring in the background 
around and I look longingly ahead to when I'll be able to do these podcasts without interruption. So that will do it for this one. As always, you can find me on TomsBigSpiders.com. You can find me on TomsBigSpiders on YouTube. Uh, Until next time, guys, have a great one. Stay safe and uh, we'll catch you next time.